kitchen yet. They save the best for last. So we're going to start renal today. But before we start, I just wanted to let you in on a couple things. One, I have a practice question set for you. Um, I think it's posted. I have to double check, but you're not ready for it yet. You won't be ready for it until we finish the clearance lecture, um, but you will have practice questions to help you move through. This section has a lot of equations. We will be doing a lot of math. So if you have trouble with math, I really implore you to see DES for some help um, because we will be doing quite a bit of equation work. And one of the things that I highly, 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 highly recommend you do is get a huge Bristol board. You can buy those at Brighton's for like $5. If you don't want to get a huge Bristol board, poster board, you can tape maybe 10 of these, 8 of these, 8 by 10 pages together. And I draw a big, huge nephron. And after each lecture, you superimpose everything that was just lectured onto this nephron. So for instance, if you were to do it this evening, you would be only really working on the glomerular capillaries and the Bowman's capsule, as well as adding in the cellular types that we work on today. Next week, you start moving, you're showing movements of solutes and water, and you keep adding as the section goes on, and then when we get to the end of the renal acid base, you will literally have the big picture. And it's good to color code, like, you know, make reabsorption in purple and secretion in green and inhibitors in red so that you know what you're seeing. Those students that have done this in the past, I've actually asked several to give me their posters and they refuse because they end up using it again in term five. So they're like, we'll give it to you, Dr. Powell. So when I ask them for it, they're like, mm, no and they end up using it. So they found it very helpful, and that's something to help with the active learning. I know there's this picture that's going around that everybody seems to love, but it has errors on it, FYI. So if you want to use that, um, just be mindful that it's not completely correct. So on that note, let's get started. So what do we know the kidney to do? What does the kidney do? Filters. Okay. Blood pressure. It's endocrine, but what about endocrine? Red blood cells, renin, what else? Vitamin D. VPO. What else? What else does your kidney do? Filtration, pH balance, water, everything. Urine, I heard it though, right? Formation of urine, major thing that they do. So let's see how that works. These are your learning objectives for today's lecture and your assigned readings. All right, so we have kidneys, two of them. They're bean-shaped. And if you make a fist, they're approximately the size of your fist. 
and they're located in the retroperitoneal cavity, which is behind between the 12th thoracic and the 3rd lumbar vertebrae. And they're partially protected by floating ribs. And because we have a few more organs on the right side, you'll find that the right kidney is slightly lower than the left. So this is what the kidney would look like. It's a cartoon right here on the left-hand side. And this is what the real kidney would look like if we were to take a cross-section and cut it in half. This light pink area is your cortex. It's the cortical area of the kidney. And this is where you're going to find more of the active processes. You've got a whole lot of blood flow going on up here in the cortex. And this is where you're going to find your convoluted tubules. So when we start discussing portions of the nephrons and we talk about the proximal and the distal convoluted tubules, you'll know that they're located in the cortical area. You have in this darker pink region the medulla. And of course, here you're going to have lower blood flow because this is where you're going to generate an osmotic gradient, which is going to help with the concentration and dilution of the urine. And so with that being said, you don't want the blood flow to be too fast because you want to be able to generate the gradient. So within the medullary area and partially into the cortical area, you have these functional units called the nephrons. And the nephrons are going to be very um, important in terms of concentrating and diluting and generating urine. Once the urine gets formed, it passes through the uh, minor calyces into the major calyces, and then it's going to flow down um, through the hilus, down the ureter, into the bladder, and then the urine gets expelled into the environment. And as you aptly told me, kidney has several different functions. It can be your excretory, regulatory, or an endocrine type of an organ. So we know it filters, cleans the blood. It's like the body's washing machine. It eliminates all the toxins and waste products that the body doesn't need. And in doing so, it generates urine, a uh, volume of urine, roughly around one to one and a half liters every day. It helps to secrete and excrete toxins and products that our body doesn't need. And it also allows for the reabsorption of solutes and fluids that we do need. Okay. Controls pH, electrolyte balance, volume. It secretes, synthesizes um, hormones like urethropoietin to stimulate your blood cell production, your vitamin D. It secretes your renin into the circulation, which is going to help with the renin-angiotensin-2 aldosterone pathway, which we will study in much more detail next week. And through that, you have your total renal blood flow approximately 25% of your cardiac output, which means you've got 1,800 liters of blood that's passing through the kidneys per day, which means you have about 1.25 liters passing through the kidney every minute. And from the 1,800 liters per day, because the blood is rapidly passing through your glomerular capillaries, only about 180 liters per day gets filtered. And from that filtrate that gets formed, 99% of the ultrafiltrate, the solutes and fluids, gets reabsorbed. So really, you're only excreting about 1% of solutes. And again, what's important here is that you've got the functional unit, which is your nephron, and there are millions per kidneys. And this is what it looks like. You've got your Bowman's capsule. And within your Bowman's capsule, you've got your glomerular capillary network. 
And once you have filtered the blood, it's going to become tubular fluid as it passes through your proximal convoluted tubule. So again, now we're in the cortical area when we talk about convoluted tubules. And as we pass down into the loop of Henle, the loop of Henle is comprised of three different segments. You've got your descending limb, you've got your thin ascending limb, and you've got a thick ascending limb. And that's in the medullary area of the kidney. As we move back into the cortical area, we now pass through our distal convoluted tubule, and then we move out, the fluid will continue to move down and out through the collecting duct. Now, if you notice on the collecting duct, there are several different branches. And that is because you can have more than one nephron feeding into the same collecting duct. And that means as you move down the collecting duct that you're beginning to concentrate and starting to formulate your urine, which will eventually be excreted out into the environment. And so this is what the nephron would look like, along with its blood supply, which is going to be very important when we're talking about reabsorption and secretion. But before we talk about that, you have to also understand that there's more than one type of a nephron. You've got your juxtamedullary uh, nephron, and you've got your cortical nephron. And if you look at the cartoons that are shown here, can anybody spot some differences? There are about three big major differences between those two types of nephrons. Can anybody see them? What do we got? Location in the capsule. So where are we looking in terms of the cortical versus the juxtamedullary? Cortical is higher up in the cortex. Good. Two? Longer loop of Henle. Why? One goes into the medulla, but why? It's going to concentrate, right? But why is one loop of Henle longer than the other? Can anybody notice it? Say it louder. A longer ascending limb. So the cortical nephron doesn't have a thin ascending limb. It goes straight from your thin descending into your thick ascending. And we notice that the cortical nephron is further up in the cortex. And as another difference is, you've got a longer loop of Henle, and that loop of Henle falls longer, more deeper into the medullary area. The reason being is that these two nephrons have different functions. You have 85% cortical nephrons, and they're responsible more for electrolyte balance. But then the 15% of juxtamedullary nephrons are what's going to be responsible for generating concentrated and diluting urine. And so when we move forward through this section, when we talk about nephrons, we're going to be talking about the juxtamedullary nephrons. Okay. So let's talk about the blood supply to the nephrons. So again, you've got your glomerular capillary network, which falls inside your Bowman's capsule. But the blood has to come in and the blood has to come out. And so you've got what's called an afferent arteriole. Your afferent arteriole is going to um, bring the blood in to the glomerular capillary network. And you're going to find that filtration is going to occur at the glomerular capillaries. Now, as the blood is flowing through the glomerular capillary network, not all the blood is going to get filtered. But you're going to get a good amount, about 20% that gets filtered through each pass. And for the blood as it passes through, it's going to continue on through the efferent arteriole. 
And then it, the blood is going to continue on into a secondary capillary network called the peritubular capillaries. Now, your peritubular capillary network wraps around the epithelial portion of the nephron, which will include your proximal and your distal convoluted tubules. So we know that the peritubular capillary network is going to be located in which part of the kidney then, if it wraps the proximal and the distal convoluted tubules. So we're looking, we're looking at the PT caps. I like to just abbreviate it as PT caps up in the cortical area. Okay. And then as we move down, what's important to note about this, though, with the peritubular capillaries is that it wraps itself around the proximal convoluted tubule. And this is where 99% of your reabsorption is going to occur. Your proximal tubule is your heavy hitter for reabsorption. And so this is where you're going to find most of your solutes being returned to the circulation. As we move down to our loop of Henle, you'll see that there's also another little bit of network here, a capillary network called the vasorecta. And you've got these capillaries that are close proximity to the loop of Henle. They're, they hairpin wrap around the loop of Henle. And these are specialized portion of the peritubular capillaries, and they will um, allow for, again, reabsorption and secretion of solutes and fluids between the loop of Henle portion and the circulation. So let's take a look at the glomerulus. So we're going to start from the very top and work our way to the very end. So when we're at the glomerular capillaries, we're looking at filtration. Now filtration is the very first step in the formation of urine. So again, you've got your afferent arterial bringing your blood into the glomerular capillary network, and then you've got the blood leaving through the efferent arterial network. And this is what it would look like under electron micro microscope. And then the blood that gets passed to the glomerular capillaries, they now get um, filtered. And so let's take a look and see what happens here. So one thing that's very important about filtration is that filtration is a one-way process. It's like a one-way road. You have the blood coming in from your afferent arterial being filtered through your glomerular capillary network, and then the ultrafiltrate passes through your Bowman's capsule to the Bowman space. And then it continues on down into your proximal tubule. That's the only way your fluid should be going. If you've got movement of fluid backwards, you've got a pathophysiological problem. You have a blockage somewhere, and the fluid is backing up, and that's not a good thing. So if we were to filter in a normal individual, you would see that filtration is going to move through the glomerular capillaries into the Bowman space, into the proximal tubule. But you had a barrier. You've got a filtration barrier because not any and everything is going to get filtered. What should we not see being filtered in the urine? Protein and red, blood, and red blood cells. So if you see those in the urine, then you've got a problem with your filtration barrier. And so let's see what this filtration barrier is comprised of. So if we flip it upside down, so filtration will go this way into the proximal tubule. You've got several different layers. You've got your endothelial layer at the very bottom, followed by your basement membrane layers of different laminas. And then you've got your epithelial layer. Now, your epithelial layer is particularly interesting. It's made out of um, specialized epithelial cells called podocytes. And these podocytes form what are called foot processes. They look like little feet, otherwise known as pedicels. Right? So the pedicels or foot processes are formed by these specialized podocytes. And in between these foot processes, you'll see these tiny little slit holes. 
And that's your filtration slits through which your solutes and fluid must pass. Does anybody have an idea what these little lines are along these pedestals? I heard it. Negative charges. So what does that mean? Well, not only is size going to be important, but charge will be as well. And we're going to see that very shortly. As we move across the glomerular capillaries, you're looking at a flux. You're looking at the movement of fluids, the movement of solutes. And so you're going to have various components that are going to be involved in this movement. And so you have an equation. Um, your flux is equal to the permeability multiplied by your glomerular filtration pressures. You have to have these two components that are going to work together to allow for the movement of your fluid and solutes across this filtration barrier. It has to deal with the permeability of a solute as well as the pressures that are going to help move the fluid and solute across this barrier. So let's take a look at the first parameter here, the permeability. And permeability, you have a filterability coefficient. Okay, now this has a range, anywhere between 10 to 15 milliliters per minute of millimeters of mercury. It's an invariant constant, and it's going to de describe how permeable the renal corpuscle is to a particular solute or fluid. Now, if you're going to be asked to use this on an exam, you would have to be given the KF. Because it's such a range, it could be 11, it could be 12, it could be 13. You can't just assume. So that uh, value would have to be given to you on an exam. So as we move through, you've got size components of your solutes. Now, if you have a solute that's a small radii, which is less than 15 angstroms, it will move right on through that filtration barrier, no problem. Doesn't matter if it's sodium or if it's chloride, if it's magnesium, if it's glucose, urea, doesn't matter. As long as its size is below 15 angstroms, it will pass through that, that, that barrier, filtration barrier, without a problem. And that substance is considered to then be freely filtered because okay? it has no barrier to it. Any molecule that has a size greater than 35 angstroms, there's no filterability at all. Not going through, doesn't matter if it's positively charged, it's not going to make it through. Proteins and your RBCs are an example of those. But what about those substances that fall between... Um, 15 and 35 angstroms, what do you think is going to happen with those solutes then? Smaller is going to be more filterable, but I also heard what else is going to have to be taken into consideration? Charge, right. So that charge component will only hold true for those solutes that fall between the 15 and 35 angstrom range. Anything below 15 doesn't matter what the charge is on it. It will freely fil move, fil filter through. But anything between 15 and 35, you have to be cognizant of the size as well as the charge. So if I had a solute, let's say the solute was 18 angstroms and negatively charged versus a 20 angstrom solute that's positively charged, which one do you think is going to be f more freely filtered? The one with the positive charge. Slightly bigger, but still small enough to make it through, but the positive charge is going to help it move through a little bit better. Now, filterability is a concentration ratio. So you'll see diagrams that will give you a filterability um, value. 
And if the filterability ratio is one, that means that the concentration of the solute in the Bowman space is equal to the concentration of the solute in the blood, which means that it can move freely from the plasma into the Bowman space without any um, barrier. And so when you see a substance that has a filterability concentration ratio of one, it is freely filterable, which means the concentration of that substance in the plasma is equal to that in the Bowman space. But if I didn't have a freely filtered molecule, for instance, if I look at proteins, would my concentration of protein be greater in the plasma or greater in the Bowman space? It would be greater in the plasma. It's not filtered. So you really shouldn't see any protein in the Bowman space, but you should see a whole lot left behind in the plasma. And here again, charge. Very important. Only falls for those, um, only holds true for those uh, molecules between 15 and 35 angstroms. And so how this works as well is that cations are going to be a little bit more filterable than neutral, which are definitely going to be more filterable than anions. Okay. So here you'll see these substances that have a filterability coefficient. You'll see water, urea, glucose, sucrose, and even inulin all have a very high filterability, close to one, which means it's freely filtered. doesn't matter how much you have, what the, what the charge is, it's going to move through the barrier without any problem. The serum albumin is less than 1.001, which means no filterability at all. Okay? So the filterability coefficient is going to give you an idea of how your substance moves across the barrier. So here again is our effective size and charge on filterability. So we have anions. And even though they're small in size because they're an anion, they're less filterable than molecules of exactly the same size, but that with of a neutral and or uh, cation charge, positive charge. Okay. So as you see, you can have a molecule here that's about 30 angstroms. It's not going to go through if it's an anion, but it has a better chance of being filtered if it has a positive or a neutral charge. Okay. Question? No. If it's less than 15, it's freely filterable. It can be negative, positive, doesn't matter. Charge only holds true for those solutes between 15 and 35 angstroms. Yeah. All right. And so, which one would be classified as being non-freely filtered? All right. Let's see what you all chose. All right, good. So urea, leucine is an amino acid. That's freely filterable. PAH is para-aminohypurate. That is freely filterable. As is inulin, and you shouldn't see, is proteins moving through. Okay. All right. So... 
we have our flux equation, and we talked about the permeability portion of our flux equation. Now we've got to talk about the pressures that are also involved in moving the fluid across the barrier. So I know you're very familiar with Starling's Law, yeah? Yeah. Right? You know you got your four pressures, your hydrostatic and your oncotic, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> but just for those of you who don't remember, remember our hydrostatic pressures are involved in pushing fluid out of the capillary or the interstitium. And then we've got our oncotic pressures, which are generated by proteins, and they pull water to them, whether it be into the uh, tubule or into the capillary, they, they draw water. Okay. So we have, in theory, four hydrostatic, uh, four Starling's forces, two hydrostatic and two oncotic. You will have the hydrostatic pressure of the capillary, and in this case, the glomerular capillary. You will have a hydrostatic pressure in the Bowman space, which is considered interstitial. Okay, so you have hydrostatic pressure in the glomerular capillaries, hydrostatic pressure in the Bowman space. You'll definitely have an oncotic pressure in the blood, glomerular capillaries. But would you expect to see an oncotic pressure in the Bowman space? No, there shouldn't be any protein. If you do, because in some cases you will see protein in the Bowman space, then you have a pathophysiological problem. And then that will be something different. But in general, normal uh, physiology, there should not be an oncotic pressure of the Bowman space. Okay. So as we look at the glomerular capillaries, you have your forces that are going to be at play. You've got forces favoring filtration, and you've got forces that are going to oppose your filtration or favor reabsorption. Okay. So you've got a major force, that's your hydrostatic pressure of the glomerular capillary, that's going to be pushing fluid out of the capillary. It favors filtration. So it's pushing the fluid out of the capillary into the Bowman space, and this is relatively constant, anywhere between 45 and 60 millimeters of mercury. Okay. Another pressure that would be favoring filtration would be the oncotic pressure of the Bowman space because the proteins there would draw fluid to it, but it is zero normally. So that doesn't really count. Okay. However, however, if on an exam you are provided with a value of the oncotic pressure in the Bowman space, you need to use that value. Okay. But typically, you'll see the questions read, the oncotic pressure in the Bowman space is zero, minimal, none. Okay. But sometimes you might see a value, and if you see a value, then you use it. You've got pressures that oppose filtration now. So you've got the oncotic pressure of the glomerular capillaries. So the proteins in the glomerular capillaries are going to draw fluid towards it, back into the glomerular capillaries. And you've got the hydrostatic pressure of the Bowman space, which is going to push fluid out of that Bowman space back into the glomerular capillary. Now, the oncotic pressure of the Bowman space is also relatively constant. The only force that changes from as we move from the afferent end to the efferent end is your oncotic pressure of the glomerular capillaries. Why? Because there you go. Right. So what's happening is as you're moving from the afferent side to the efferent side, you're filtering all of the fluids, all of the solutes. 
And so what are you doing with that protein concentration as you're filtering solutes in fluid? You're increasing its concentration. One second. And so as you move from the afferent to the efferent side, that protein concentration is going to get higher and it's going to generate a larger force. Yes, sir. What would cause a change in my osmotic pressure in my Bowman's capsule? I don't know about that pressure. My osmotic pressure in my Bowman's capsule? Oncotic. And see, that's good. But that's good, though. Because one thing about renal that I really need you all to understand is that terminology is going to be key here. If you get the wrong terminology, because I know a lot of students like to mix up secretion and excretion, osmotic and oncotic, that will catch you. However, you're not fully wrong, though, because you can see oncotic pressure also referred to as colloid osmotic pressure. But to avoid confusion, we prefer to use oncotic. So just, this, that was a good little slip there because that made me remind you that terminology is going to be very, very, very important as we move through. What can make a change in your oncotic pressure in the Bowman space? Well, you can have what's called nephritic or nephrotic syndrome, where then there's a breakdown in the barrier, um, and then that will allow all the proteins to fall through. Um, and then that's, that's pathophys, so we don't really want to go into that. We, uh, we'll touch on it a little bit in a couple of slides, but that is definitely a pathophys um, problem that you'll see. Yeah? Yeah, Matthew, did you have a question? Oh, okay. Yeah? Then, all right. Okay. As we move through with our forces, question. If there was a pressure, it would favor filtration, right? Because what does protein do? Draws water to it. If there was a pressure. But because it's zero, it's not, it's negligible, it's not counted. But if there was a value, which in some questions they'll give you maybe one, maybe two, that would be needed to be used in the equation, which we're going to do just now, and you would have to count that as a force that favors filtration. Yeah. Now when you look at the numbers, you're going to see negatives and positives. Now when we do the calculations, to determine the change in our pressures, we don't really use the negative and positive. What the negatives and positives here are showing are just magnitudes. So positive is filtration, negative is, re is reabsorption. And you can get a positive or a negative value, and that's going to denote the direction in which the net movement of fluids is going. Okay? So moving back to our oncotic pressure in the glomerular capillary, you can have the oncotic pressure of the glomerular capillaries get to be so great that it can actually cause a filtration equilibrium, whereby the two pressures that oppose filtration actually add up to be equal to the filtration pressure, and you're at a filtration equilibrium. So as you move from the afferent to the efferent arterial side, your oncotic pressure of your glomerular capillaries the only pressure that really is going to see a major change. Okay. So here, if we take our values, 
we have to use a Starling equation to determine our delta P or the net pressures as we move across the glomerular capillaries. Got your glomerular capillary here. If we use the values here, 45, our Bowman space um, hydrostatic pressure is 10, and our oncotic pressure in the glomerular capillaries is 19, and of course, our Bowman space oncotic pressure should be zero. Now, typically, how I like to work this equation is I like to take the sum of those pressures that favor filtration, and then I like to subtract from that value the sum of those forces that favor reabsorption. Okay. So the hydrostatic pressure of the glomerular capillaries plus the oncotic pressure in the Bowman space, if there is one, subtract from that these two pressures added together. Okay. Now, because our oncotic pressure of the Bowman space is generally always zero, you can manipulate this equation so that you have the hydrostatic pressure of the glomerular capillary minus the hydrostatic pressure of the Bowman space, switch the sign here, and you get minus the oncotic pressure. So basically, you're looking at your filtration pressure minus both the reabsorptive pressures. Okay? So if we were to do this using these values, what would my net force then favor? What's my value and what would it favor? So we would get 16 and it's a positive 16. So that positive value would denote the direction of filtration. Because if you get a negative, that just means it's going in the opposite direction. Okay. So if we look at this graph, You'll see the movement across the glomerular capillary from the afferent end to the efferent end. And then on the y-axis, you have the colloid osmotic or the oncotic pressure. So normally, if I filter fluids out, what should happen to my oncotic pressure in my glomerular capillaries? It's going to go up. So if you look at the normal red line, as you move from one end, afferent, to the efferent, your oncotic pressure does go up. What happens if I extremely, extremely increase my filtration rate and I start filtering out an exorbitant amount of fluid and solutes? What's then going to happen to my oncotic pressure? It's going to rise high, which is what that blue line is showing on the graph. That if I increase my filtration fraction, the amount of fluid and the amount of solutes that I filter, my oncotic pressure is going to get very, very high because I'm going to be filtering more fluids and more solutes, so my protein concentration is going to get high. What happens if I don't? What happens if my fluid filtration is very low, very slow, and it's not filtering a lot? What's my plasma oncotic pressure going to look like then? It's going to be a lot lower. And so that's what the green line is showing. You'll see a slight increase, but it won't be as obvious as normal or the blue line. Right? So if I decrease my filtration fraction, I won't increase that concentration of the, of the proteins as much. And so my oncotic pressure will go down. All right, so you're probably all thinking, okay, this is wonderful, yay, who cares? But this is actually very, very important when we talk about GFR. Our GFR is our glomerular filtration rate, and this is the rate at which the ultrafiltrate forms in the Bowman space. This is the value that's going to tell you whether your patient is normal, whether your patient needs dialysis, or whether your patient needs a new kidney. Your GFR 
is going to be your KF times your delta P. The one thing that I would suggest that you do as well is make yourself a cheat sheet because we have a lot of equations coming so that you'll have them nicely listed. And this will be the first one that you can add to it, your KF times delta P. So when we talk about our GFR, we're talking about how permeable is the renal corpuscle to a solute fluid and how are my pressures working to help push that fluid and solute across my glomerular capillaries. And of course, the values of your GFR can range depending on gender, age. I can have a very small Asian lady and her GFR is normal at 90. Or I can have a big burly lumberjack and his GFR is normal at 140 milliliters per minute. So it depends, again, on size, gender, and the range normal 90 to 140 milliliters per minute. And again, just like terminology is important, units are going to be very important. I've seen some USMLE questions where they give you the right numeric value, but they change the units. So if you're not sure of the units, then you have a problem of being caught as well. Right? So you want to be mindful of your units as you work through. So here again, our KF is our invariant constant. And again, it's a range between 10 and 15 milliliters per minute, millimeters of mercury. So you, again, that will have to be given. So if the KF is given at 12, and you calculate your delta pressure, your change of pressure to be 10 millimeters of mercury, your GFR would simply be 12 times your 10, and that would be a nice normal GFR. What would happen though, if I played around with my afferent and efferent arterioles like a garden hose, constricting and dilating? How would that affect my GFR? Well, if I constricted my afferent arteriole, what's gonna happen to my renal plasma flow, the movement of the blood into my afferent arteriole into the glomerular capillaries? What's gonna happen to it? It's gonna go down. And as a consequence, what's gonna happen to the hydrostatic pressure in the glomerular capillaries then? It's gonna go down. And as a result of that happening, what's gonna happen to my GFR then? It's gonna go down as well. What if I dilated my afferent arterial? What's gonna happen to my renal plasma flow into the arterial and glomerular capillaries? It's gonna go up. And what's gonna happen to my hydrostatic pressure then if I'm letting more blood flow in? It's gonna increase, and what's that gonna do to my GFR? It's gonna increase my GFR. Good. Now let's look at see what happens on the back end now if I play with my efferent arterial. So if I constrict my efferent arterial, what's gonna happen to that renal runoff, that blood flow flowing out of my efferent arterial down into my peritubular capillaries if I constrict it? It's gonna decrease. But what's gonna happen to my hydrostatic pressure in the glomerular capillaries? It's gonna go up because my blood now is backing up. And so that's gonna increase my hydrostatic pressure in my glomerular capillaries, and then what's that gonna to do to my GFR then? It's going to increase my GFR. If I dilate my efferent arterial, what's gonna to happen to that blood runoff? It's gonna go up. What's gonna to happen to my hydrostatic pressure then in my glomerular capillaries if I'm allowing the blood to run off freely? It's gonna go down, and what's gonna to happen to my GFR as a result? That's gonna go down. So how you manipulate your afferent and your efferent is gonna play a very big role on affecting your GFR.
Okay, because one thing about the kidney, it's a very, very, very selfish organ. It likes to stay constant. It likes its renal blood flow to stay constant. It likes its GFR to stay constant. If there are any changes, it works very hard to ensure that the values are normalized. And so you're going to see, as we move through, instances where the GFR gets affected, increased, decreased, and the kidney does what it needs to do and to ensure that it becomes normalized. I saw a question. Yes. Well, if I, if I dilate my efferent, what's happening to the blood? It's running off quickly, right? So how is that generating a pressure in my glomerular capillaries if the blood is running off? The pressure will go down. And so then that's going to cause your GFR to also go down. All right. So if I constrict my afferent or constrict my efferent arterial, which pressure is going to be mostly affected? If I constrict my afferent or constrict my efferent, which pressure will be mostly affected? My hydrostatic pressure of my, my glomerular capillaries. If I increase or decrease my plasma concentration, what pressure will be mostly affected? Oncotic pressure of my glomerular capillaries. If I constrict my ureter, oh, what would happen? Which pressure would be mostly affected if I constrict my ureters? My kidney, everything is not affected. My hydrostatic pressure of my Bowman space. Very good. Because what's happening here now is you've got a blockage going on. And if there's a blockage going on, this is how this fluid is supposed to flow out nicely through here. But if I have a blockage down here, that fluid can't come out. So that fluid starts to back up, back up, and then it gets into the Bowman space, and that pressure increases. And this is where you'll start to see patients that will have um, uh, hydronephrosis. Not fun. Hurts a lot. So here are some diseases that change if you change your Charles Starling's forces. So this first little boy here is a patient that's got nephrotic syndrome, right? And so what happens is there's an increased permeability of his glomerular capillaries, so the plasma proteins are now being excreted. And so what happens is the plasma proteins, their role is to stay within the blood supply and the capillaries in order to draw fluid out of the interstitial spaces and, and prevent fluid from building up in these interstitial spaces. But if the plasma proteins are not available to do so, well, you'll see what happens. This patient now has ascites, abdominal ascites. His scrotum is very, very swollen, and his face is very swollen. He does not have the proteins available to help remove fluids out of the interstitial spaces, and so he's very, very bloated. And so what happens here is because the proteins are now being uh, filtered now you'll see an increase in that oncotic pressure in the Bowman space. On this side here, you've got a kidney stone. And this is your obstructive uropathy. And you've got this obstruction. And what happens is, is now it's going to back up that tubular flow from allowing the fluid to move in that one direction. It backs it up. And then it increases that hydrostatic pressure of the Bowman space.
All right. So this is the type of question that you will come across. And so basically, you've got your hydrostatic pressure in the glomerular capillaries is 50. Hydrostatic pressure in the Bowman space is 12. The oncotic pressure in the glomerular capillaries is 30, and there's no protein in the filtrate. So when you do your equation, you should get an answer of 8. So it's mainly 50 minus your 42. And if I gave you the KF and told you the KF for this patient was 12 milliliters per minute mercury, millimeters of mercury, what would then be this patient's GFR? 96, what? Milliliters per minute, good. All right. All right, what is the key word in the stem? What is the key word? Well, yeah, proteinuria is pretty important too, but what is the really key word in the stem? Most, okay? So one thing about USMLE again is that they can give you more than one answer that's possibly correct, but what they're really looking for is the best answer. So in this case, which would be the best answer? Yeah, number four. Now those who chose number two, they're not incorrect. There would be a change, but the problem with that change is it's very minimal in that there's always gonna be an oncotic pressure in the glomerular capillaries. So if you start losing some into the Bowman space, it's not a big, it's not a significant difference. Right? You might go from maybe 60 millimeters of mercury to maybe 40. But the biggest difference is having a change from zero to maybe 20. You're not supposed to have a pressure. So the biggest change that's mostly affected is going from an area that's not supposed to have a pressure at all to having a number associated with it. Yeah, you lose some protein out of the glomerular capillaries, but it's not gonna be a significant change because there's still protein in the glomerular capillaries biggest change will be seen in the Bowman space where there isn't supposed to be protein at all. Yeah? All right. I'll let you guys go for a break and then we'll pick up and finish off this one.